so, and in the world we live in, especially now with social media, it's like it's very easy to look to the left and the right of see what everybody else is doing and feel less than. And that has been such a huge struggle in my life. And so part of setting boundaries and learning to own that I was uniquely created the way that I am. You are uniquely created the way that you are. Lindsay's uniquely created the way that she is. And all of that is good. And that I don't need to look to the left or the right. And I can own my space. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey, podcast listeners. I'm working on a fun project, and I need your help. We want to share some of the good news that you're seeing or experiencing around the world. If you call 629-777-5956 and leave a voicemail sharing your good news, you may be featured on an episode of the Living Center podcast. We all need a little bit of good news, and I'd love to hear from you. Today on the Living Centered Podcast, I'm so excited to introduce you to award-winning host, storyteller, and producer, Ashley Eicher. During this conversation with Lindsay and me, Ashley showed up as her brilliant, warm, and hilarious self to share the ways that she's been learning to embrace and live wholeheartedly into her story. Together, we explore her passion for elevating stories of people affected by COVID in her community, the ways her on-site experience impacted how she shows up in relationships, and the joys and challenges of building a life as a single woman. In this honest and vulnerable conversation, Ashley invites us to show up more authentically as ourselves and lean into our enoughness without comparison. This conversation is such a gift, and I can't wait for you to meet our friend, Ashley Eicher. It's Lindsay and I's debut interview together, co-hosting oh together. Gosh, I I'm kind of nervous. It. I know. I'm just going to let her do all that heavy lifting. It I, is a little bit nerve-wracking to interview what, Ashley. What are you nervous about? Let's talk about it. You are a professional interviewer. <laughs> that is your job. So, well, I just, I mean, I do talk a lot, but it's mostly just like getting people comfortable and disarming them a little bit in the yeah. beginning and then just having a conversation. I love that. It'll be great. Anyway, I'm excited that I'm, y'all, this is the debut of you guys doing it together. Yeah. I'm no. so glad I get to be here for it. You're here for it. <laughs> it's so fun to have you on campus. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the first time I've been back on campus since I went through the Living Centered program in January of 2019. Wow. Uh, what what memories did it conjure as you drove up oh gosh, the big so, driveway? Like, I, I love that I'm starting to tear up as you ask me that question. Mm. Like, as I was driving out here, which I love to drive out here because it's out in the country and it's so beautiful. But I think I started thinking about how different this drive was than the drive when I drove out here two years ago, how different life is. Yeah. I started thinking about two or three of my dearest friends that came out of on-site that mm. are like extended family at this point um, that we all also went through quarantine together. And that was like part of my quarantine family. Stuff that was worked through, like my small group, like Mary B., who is my counselor, who's just the greatest. I mean, so many things. So it's all kind of weirdly rushing back. I think it's so easy, like, in the day-to-day to to feel like nothing is changing in our lives. And then to come back almost two years later and be like, oh, like, so much has changed in the world, and I've changed so much. Oh, yeah. 
really to like mark the progress is really powerful. I feel when you were mentioning about the delineations, I think that's something I've been reading and hearing is that so many milestones were missed that we didn't get to celebrate, like things were missed over. Mm-hmm. And so creating intentional space for that has been an interesting process for me as we're leaving like yeah. quarantine and post-COVID world, not that we're really in that, but just making sure I revisit those things that didn't get celebrated or didn't get the weight that they had to actually have that milestone has been interesting. That's a good point. I don't know yeah. that I'd really thought about that, but it's true. Or just going back and celebrating those. I think I've felt more of the the weight mm. of so many of the things mm. that have happened or gone on or whether it's in the world or in me, as opposed to thinking about the things that we should celebrate of the last year that may have been missed in celebration. So well, we didn't really have permission to celebrate. Right. right. If everything felt heavy, it felt kind of scandalous to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to yell at you at social media if you were <laughs> celebrating anything last year. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. You really sat in the weight of COVID. Mm -hmm. I know that one of the projects that you worked on this past year has been to tell some of the stories Mm. of musicians in the music industry and how that was affected by COVID. Will you just tell a little bit about that project and some of your learnings from it? Yeah. So um, ACM Lifting Lives, which is the Academy of Country Music, the charitable arm of the ACMs, in December... Um, Cindy Mabe, who's president of Universal, reached out to me and she's like, Ashley, no one's telling the stories of our people within the music industry who have lost their jobs and livelihoods due to music touring being shut down throughout COVID. So, so often people think about just the artist and they look at the artist and they're like, oh, they've got this nice house and this plane or they've got whatever. And that every artist, no matter whether they're an A level or a C level, is making millions of dollars, and clearly everyone else be, must be making millions of dollars, and they're fine. And they're not thinking about the hundreds and thousands, well, probably million of people, millions of people behind the scenes, stage managers, guitar techs, tour managers, bus drivers, that all lost their jobs. If they were working for an artist that couldn't continue to pay them, which many couldn't, especially mm-hmm. you know artists that are just on their way up, takes a long time to make money in touring. Uh, And for so many, that's the way artists provide for their band and crew and themselves. And so when all of that shuts down, we have no shows for a year. I mean, so many people were out of work. And so no one was telling those stories. Mm. And ACM Lifting Lives had given away $3.5 million by December of 2020 to different people within our industry who needed it. But that fund had been depleted. So Mm -hmm. like, how can we tell these stories to help raise money for the fund itself and then be able to help more people? So I basically said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to executive produce it and run it through my production company. And they said, okay. And so I got to create this series to tell these stories of, you know, people that I care about so much because I've spent my whole career in the music industry um, and then raise money for ACM Lifting Lives. And so... Chrissy Metz got involved as a part cool. of it, and Kit Moore, and Jimmy Allen, and Tennille Towns. Mm-hmm. And then we had a stage manager guitar tech, Patrick, sharing his story of him and his family. And the same thing with a guy named James Chenault that was in festival operations. And so just trying to help people understand the different dynamics of the business and why these people's stories matter and their livelihoods matter. So it's been great. It ended up having a one-minute spot in the ACM Awards and raised a bunch of money, which is what we wanted it to do. And so it was just, it kind of merged all of my favorite things 
It was great. How did sort of digging into those stories impact you personally? Um, you know, that I don't really know. I think I, I don't even know if I've really thought about that yet. No. I think that I was so in it mm-hmm. and wanting it to be beautiful and moving and tell the stories well. Like that was so important to me to honor the stories of our people and and do it in such a way that connected and that was beautiful. And so I feel like it accomplished that. Um, I haven't thought about the way it affected me personally, other than I'm just grateful that I got to tell those stories and that someone saw that myself and my team would be able to do that in that way. Kind of like realizing the power of doing something. Yeah, just mm. using whatever gifts and talents you have to to help someone else and or put some good into the world. I think that's one of the things we've seen so much this last year, so much negative and so much yeah. hatefulness. And, you know, families being torn apart and friendships being torn apart and thinking about, okay, we need hope and we need goodness. So how can we love other people better and get outside of ourselves a little bit. I love that. I was thinking back uh, in preparation of this interview about the first time I connected with you. And Uh I think it was when I was living in Austin and I had written a blog post about being single. And I was like, girl, (laughs) let's talk about it. Can you get on the phone? Amen. Can we be friends? And also, and we had so many mutual friends at that point. Like I knew Mm -hmm. of you, but we didn't know each other yet. Um, it's fun how the friendship has grown since then. But yeah. I think that you do such a great job of being single and acknowledging a desire. <laughs> do I think so? To be partnered <laughs> with someone. Um, but like also like having a really vibrant, full life where yeah. you are out pursuing your dreams and trying to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Trying to, Yes. How, yeah, what does that feel like for you and what's the reality of it? I mean, I think it depends on the day. Gosh, I wish I could go back and read that blog post you did. That would probably unearth some things. I think in the last, what's been hard about the last year and COVID and being single and living alone is that the isolation and loneliness, Mm -hmm. like that has really... My counselor has said, she was like, this year has exasperated yeah. your loneliness, and which is so true. And so I think there are days that are fine, and I'm like, oh, I'm good. I've got this. But the heart of my heart is wanting to meet someone and find a partner and get married and have kids. And, you know, this is not what I thought life would look like at this point. And so while I've done a lot of work around that, there is still probably some work to be done because it's just hard like yeah it's just reality and that's hard especially when that's something you desire Mm. so and I get so frustrated when people are like well you're just not trying hard enough to find someone or you're not doing this and I'm like listen (laughs) I don't want to say this like (laughs) if you haven't dated in the digital age you don't understand dating in the digital age or dating your 30s or 40s yeah. is so different than meeting somebody in college or right post-college or, where everyone's kind of in that same season. Yes. And I mean, I thank you, Lord, I did not marry the guy I was dating in my 20s. That caused a lot of destruction, and I've learned a lot from it. But there are moments where I'm like, 
am I going to be single for the rest of my life? Like, I think that's, I'm getting to the age where you start to wonder, like, is that what life is going to look like? And trying to attempt to be content in that. And some days I am, and some days I'm not, while still holding out hope. Like, there's going to be somebody great at some point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you acknowledged loneliness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anyone that knows you knows that you're sort of super connected to people. You're Mm -hmm. definitely a people person. And when I think of you, I think of you just surrounded by a room full of people and that we can be in a room full of people and still feel lonely. Oh, yeah. Yes. And and honestly, some of, gosh, it's so interesting you say that because there are moments where I will be in a room full of people and feel just heartbreakingly alone. Mm, Yeah. And it's hard sometimes too where I think you want to celebrate your friends who have found amazing relationships. Like you can hold both spaces of celebrating the people in your life that have found great people and amazing relationships while still feeling the loneliness of that isn't in your life yet. Mm -hmm. And maybe it won't be, which can be really scary to think about if that's something you desire. So is there anything practical that you do on hard days that helps you sort of feel more grounded or more hopeful? I mean, I typically journaling in every aspect of my life. Like that's a lot of times the way that I process being really honest with the people that are a safe space for me. Yeah. I think that's definitely one of the things I've realized over the last couple of years since being at Onside and just kind of my journey since is that because I love people and I love being around people and so much of my personality, I mean, I grew up on stage. So it's like so much of my personality is I'll talk to anybody. I love meeting new people. I love getting to know where they're from and what they've done. And and for so long, the people pleaser in me also was like, I wanted that approval and I felt like I needed oh, I'm an open book and I can tell Mm. anyone everything. And realizing that there are only certain people that can hold that space Mm. for me safely. Yeah. And that's okay. And so a lot of times I can call my friend, you know, Beth or Ashley or other friends of mine and just that know that part and will hold that space for me safely and just be really honest of like, this sucks. Yeah. This sucks. Like I'm going to another family gathering or a wedding alone, and this sucks. Yeah. But also trying to enjoy it. So you, I have to sometimes hold both spaces. Yeah. There's a lot of beauty in that tension, and you talking about that I think is really beautiful. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> I think it is. I think it's a both and, right? Like I think yeah. as I was hearing you say that, like I can be happy for this person, but not denying yourself and allowing it to matter. Yeah. I think that's something that I've learned over the last couple of years of – not comparing like, well, I should be happy because of this, but no, this matters. And I can still show up and be empathetic for this other person while allowing, not denying myself. While still feeling this. Yeah. Yeah. We say in our house, uh, content while contending. Like I can be content while still Mm, contending. That's good. So. Content while contending. I'm probably going to steal that. Go ahead. I stole it from a therapist friend. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it is, um, it's hard sometimes. What about for you? Yeah. Where are you right now in that? Well, I definitely moved past a period of waiting. I sort of think I had to grieve the idea of being married and having, um, not permanently, hopefully, I still would love to meet somebody and be married. But I think in my mind, that always looked like, oh, I'll get married at 28, and then I'll have about five years together, and then we'll start 
planning to have kids and, you know, right. traveled and done all the yeah. things. And as I continued to get older and that was not my reality, I had to sort of grieve that dream. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that grieving that dream allowed me to, like, begin to grasp new ones. Mm, and so yeah. I sort of, as you know, I'm in the middle of this fertility journey. Yeah. Um, I'm at the end of my first trimester, which is crazy. Yay. Wow, that's exciting. But, oh, um, to I'm so excited. Embrace the idea of becoming a single mom has been terrifying and really empowering both. Yeah. And so, but it's hard. And I still, um, someone added me to a Facebook group about like, single mothers by choice. And it's so cool to see how many people are there Mm. and and interacting. And then there's like something really terrifying about being in it as well. Of just like reading the reality of their day to days and what my future could look like. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. we've talked about this, like you going through this journey is really encouraging to me because it's something that over the last couple of years, I've started to look out of like, okay, wait a second. Do I want to have kids? Still, I mean, I do. Mm -hmm. Do I need to start thinking about, am I going to need to have one by myself the older that I get? And, you know, and what does that look like? And can I do that? Or, and I think because we grew, we've talked about this, Lindsay and I have like growing up in the church Mm. and the church doesn't know what to do with women who are single in their 30s and 40s. Nope. Which is a huge percentage of their population. Very. Huge. And uh, listen, I can get real on a soapbox about all this, and I might. Um, but I don't think they, uh, many people know, especially in the South, what to do with a woman who, some people have chosen to be single and eventually mm-hmm. decided to have a child on their own. There, Those of us that have not chosen that, like, and but we also have amazing lives and careers and are grateful for that but we still desire this and so i just i think that's the hardest part of like trying to um what's the word i'm looking for all those expectations that i grew up with or mm-hmm. or thought were going to happen because that's what everybody else did especially yeah. in the church and then also trying to say to people cuz like there was a comment a woman made online recently that I got real fired up about. <laughs> and I think I said, I didn't, well, I did say something back too. I typically don't get real feisty on Twitter, but I did that day. And, but just saying like, talking about the the age brackets of people as they've gotten married. So it's like, let's say the number was like in the seventies, it was 75% of people were married between 23 and 28. And now it's like, Forty percent of people are married, but yeah. you know, people are waiting it's dramatically later to get changed. married. It's a dramatic difference. Yeah. Waiting longer and to get married and waiting longer to have children too. Yeah, and I can't remember what the statistics were, but yeah. her response to the statistics was something like, "I mean, for goodness' sakes, get on it already! On with mm. nuptial life! Mm. Like you're missing out on the best part of life!" And da 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 da. And I was like, "Okay, listen, yeah. I have lived in enough shame." For so many years from well-meaning Christians, and I say this as a Christian, saying like, well, gosh, all you had to do was just meet somebody. Like, you must not be working hard enough. Or that type of mentality of that getting married is the end-all, be-all of life. Yeah. And that if you're not there yet, your life is less than. Yeah. And there's few things right now that infuriate me more, as you can tell. Or that 
Or that you've avoided responsibility. I feel right. like that's a narrative oh, that's that narrative. Get, that gets put out there a lot that's really hard where you're like, actually, I have a lot of responsibility. I have a dog. I have a job. Yeah. I have a house. I have, you know, like, yeah. I, it's not that I'm, like, shirking the idea of being grown up because I'm yeah. having to do that maybe even more than some of my friends that are married that have somebody that helps, comes alongside them and helps them yeah. take care of some things. Yeah, there's no yes. net for you. Yeah. Handling yeah. it, yeah. So it is like we've talked some about that, just like, one, I don't want anyone, I hate thinking about anyone else feeling that way that mm. I have felt in the church of feeling like my life is less than because I am a single woman yeah. that is over the age of 35 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I love when you said they don't know what to do with me because I think that's really living in the South. Mm-hmm. I have noticed that that we put people in categories in general, and then there's this like wow. When I look at the two of you, I look at your lives are so full. What mm-hmm. I know of you and what I see from afar is like you've done a really great job of building community in a way that I think a lot of people who get married early or live close to family or do whatever never have to force themselves to do that. And I see that in the two of your lives of creating such rich community with people who are in every stage of life. And I love Thank that. Thank you for saying that. Well, and I'm so grateful for my friends that, like, my married friends that aren't looking at me like there's something different. Like, there's mm. – or as if, like, they can only hang out with their married friends. Like, yeah, I'm very yeah. much in their lives as much as their married friends are. And for me, mm. that is so important because there was a season when all of my friends started to get married – it felt like a loss of so many friendships because naturally my married friends would hang out with the married friends. Yeah. And then a single people would like, oh, well, they don't want to hang out with the married people or, you know, you just kind of get left out. And mm. and I'm sure there was some on the other side of that as well, too. And so, you know, it's just, it's hard, yeah. but it's also can be really beautiful It's just, it can be really beautiful when we have friends in all different stages of life. You mentioned uh, like there are specific people that are safe voices in your life and you have recognized that who those people aren't and who those people are. What did that process look like? I mean, that was a journey for me. So started getting back into therapy. And I think like the two years before I went to onsite, kind of like I was saying earlier, I being such a people person was just I would tell anybody anything Mm. and so often would get my feelings hurt because people would not either be able to hold that space or they'd respond out of their own stuff. And I was just sharing way too much of the deepest parts of my heart with people that I didn't need to. Mm. And so I think it took a lot of like getting hurt, but not understanding at necessarily at that point what that was. And then... Leading into going to onsite, like, I mean, I really decided, Miles and I have been talking about me going to onsite for 10 years. So this would have been November of 2018. There were just some things that summer um, that went on that, and over Thanksgiving, that just unearthed, like, the deep of the deep for me. Yeah. And I saw Miles, like, the night before I went to, I saw him at an event, like, the night before um, I was going to see my therapist. And I basically cried every day for a month. And, but couldn't figure out why. Yeah. And I told Miles, I was like, hey, I think it's time for me to go to onsite. I'm not sure. I'm going to talk to my therapist tomorrow. Like, but wait, I've dealt with some of this stuff in therapy. Like, I know how to deal with this stuff. Like, I probably don't need to go to onsite. Like, but you start like going through it all in your head. Mm-hmm. 
And I went and saw my therapist the next day. We were talking through it. And at the end, she, I was like, do I need to go to onsite? Like, she's like, it's time. Because we talked about it before. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I was here. And so I think those two weeks, like, I only told, which is not like me. Typically, I would tell everybody. I only told probably three people that I was going. There was something yeah. about it that felt so sacred to me and that I just didn't feel like everybody needed to know. Yeah, I love that. And so I really didn't. And then being here and going through the Living Center program, by the time I left a week later, I just knew there were things that had been unearthed in me that I had found freedom from, but I also knew I didn't know boundaries. Yeah. I had no boundaries. And I needed to figure out what, knowing everything that I then now knew, where did I, where could I start setting some healthy boundaries of who feels safe for me? Who doesn't feel safe? Like, mm. who can I be in relationship and friendship with? But then I'm not going to go to the deep of the deep because yeah. I, I don't want to go back to before. Mm. So it was very much a process for me, probably for a solid year after I left onsite, like not having any boundaries and then spending probably six to eight months of figuring out working myself up to like setting a boundary with someone and then being like the expectation of getting to the boundary, then setting the boundary, then the reaction after the boundary and like trying to figure what out what that looked like for me. And so it was very much a process. That was a long dissertation to your question. I love how, it. How but. was that the boundary process though? The like it because when we haven't had boundaries and we try to yeah. instill them, it is hard for people because right. they're oh, not man. used to interacting with us in that way. You're so, changing the rules. Yeah. yeah. And I think especially like with family or close friends. I mean, family was probably the most interesting because I would mm. start standing up in places that I probably hadn't before, um, but doing it in such a way that I wasn't going to back down. Yeah. So that definitely caused some tension within my family. I think in friendships, I just knew I was like, I came out of here feeling very different and and then trying to figure out what that was. Like, how do I go back into the world knowing some things have changed in me, but other people I love haven't had that same change. It's just, and trying to figure that out. So I very much, the couple of friends that I made here at Onsite that week, that we all kind of walked that week together, I mean, really became like the people I could call and be like, oh my good great. Like, how do I handle this? And mm -hmm. us kind of working through it together while also still going to counseling and sometimes twice a week um, or yeah. every other yeah. week or whatever I needed in that season yeah. to try and figure out how do I, how do I live in these friendships and relationships and how do I stay healthy because I just don't want to go back yeah. to what I felt before. So it was very much a process. Messy. And it's so messy. And then I think for me, just having the courage to set those boundaries mm. and learning to do that, not only in friendships, but in work. Because as someone who owns a company and having clients, like, so often I would just, you know, I want to keep the client happy and want to keep the business. And so I didn't really know how to set boundaries at work either, where mm -hmm. I would a lot of times let people just take advantage of the situation. Or, I mean, I want to go above and beyond for my clients, but not to a point where it's like, 
myself or my contractors aren't getting paid what they should or their right. time is not valued. And so learning to set those type of boundaries as well was really important. And I'm still learning. Has it paid off though, having the yes. boundaries? Because it sounds like a lot of work. Yes, it definitely has. It absolutely has. But it was, it has been a lot of work. But now I feel more confident in setting them than I did before. Yeah. And setting the expectations from the front end. Or if something happens, addressing it and standing in that as opposed to not and then resenting whoever, either resenting my decisions or the other person or whatever later. So it's definitely helped. I was thinking in terms of that, like starting small and getting bigger, where's there? Was there a moment, I feel like the more practice you do it, where you're like, oh, this feels second nature. It doesn't feel like it's in, I have to do this. It's just, was there a moment when you remember setting a boundary saying, uh, oh, this is different than it was before? I mean, I'm still, still yeah, trying. I mean, it's so funny. Like, I think about, I'll have a situation and I'll call my friend Beth and she's like, you have got to set a boundary with this. Like you, we have talked about this. Like <laughs> we have talked about this. I'm like, but it's hard, you know, like, so I still have, I have to have grounded people around me mm-hmm. that help me to do that too. Like I've, I'm still learning. It's not perfect. And I'm sure it never will be depending on the situation, but it is getting easier. And I think it's, it's learning to own my worth yeah. and value and knowing that that doesn't diminish anyone else's worth or value by me owning my own. Say more about that. I mean, I think, you know, the at least for me, from being in the spotlight, from being in the pageant world, I grew up performing to, mm-hmm. um, well, I grew up performing then was in the pageant world in college. Let's get that order straight. And then uh, wasn't that didn't grow up doing pageants. Teach his own. Um, and then being on stage and and doing interviews and podcasts and television and radio. Like I think I for a long time it's like you get into that. I get in the comparison and yeah. like the hustle for worthiness and mm. start looking at and you're being I was being compared in what I was doing too. Yeah. And so, and in the world we live in, especially now with social media, it's like, it's very easy to look to the left and the right of see what everybody else is doing and feel less than. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been such a huge struggle in my life. And so part of setting boundaries and learning to own that I was uniquely created the way that I am. You are uniquely created the way that you are. Lindsay's uniquely created the way that she is. And all of that is good. And that I don't need to look to the left or the right. And I can own my space, but that doesn't diminish your space or your space. And so, but it's hard because it's very easy to fall back into old lies or old tapes of you're not enough. No one's going to care. She's better than you or they're more successful. So they're better than you or, you know, whatever, which is such BS. But it's really easy to fall back into that. Yeah. I feel like I get where I feel more comfortable in the mode of doing, yeah, you know, than just being, instead of just being. Yeah. yeah. And I remember sitting down with my therapist a few years ago and um, I was just kept asking her, what do I do? Like, yeah. what do I do? And she was like, kind of, her answer was like, just stop and let go. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
oh, I can't believe I'm paying you for this answer. I just want you to tell me what to do. Yeah. But I think for a lot of us that are driven and I think even with our singleness, it sort of can add to the importance of yeah. needing to have some professional validation. Mm-hmm. Right. That uh, it just puts me in this mode of like, just tell me the next right thing to do. Right. Um, I'm tired of thinking and making all of the decisions. Yes. Like sometimes that factors into it too, where when you're talking about like the singleness and like the responsibility, there are moments where I'm like, I just need someone to say like, hey, do this because I'm making all the decisions all yeah. the time. Yeah. And that's exhausting sometimes. Yeah. So that was something like onsite really taught me was mm-hmm. that sort of the importance of being a human being yeah. and yeah. even like realizing the separation from not ta- while you're on campus, you don't talk about what you do and you don't really share last names that much and you are untethered from your cell phone and yeah. and the belief that the world needs you constantly. Right. Yeah. And that was, so that was such a like mind shift for me that was yeah. so healthy to be like, oh, like my world keeps spinning without me. And as scary as that is, it's, like, actually a beautiful thing. Yeah. There's something so freeing about it. Like, when I look back at that week at Onsite and the fact that I didn't know anybody's last names except other people I knew from my industry that I ran into at dinner. And (laughs) I was like, oh, crap. You don't know what anyone does for a living. Yeah. And not having phone or email or social media or anything for a week. And... I think the friendships that I built here, and especially like I mentioned a couple of people that have become like my quarantine family, yeah. and we're all super close. The beauty of like sitting around a fire at night and actually being present with people and finding that community again, because so often in the world we live in, you're just, we're sitting on our phones. And like you're saying, like, the world kept going mm. yeah. while I was here. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to take that step back. In fact, it can be very healthy. And I'm so grateful for that because I needed it. The other part for me, too, is I was thinking about this while I was driving down here. I think being in a world where so much of my world is like what you look like, what you do, what your achievements are, like where are you in the ring of the ladder of the music mm-hmm. industry? and. Yeah. And being on camera and feeling like, oh, you have to look perfect and be perfect to be loved. Yeah. And so I was thinking about this driving down here. I mean, the whole week I was here, this seems like slightly trivial for me to even say it, but it was such an important part of healing for me and not feeling like I had to be perfect or on to be loved. But I literally didn't put on makeup or do my hair Mm. for a week. Yeah. And I needed to feel like people loved me. And then I was just love for me without all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and they did. Hmm. And that was so freeing for me on top of like also healing a lot of past pain and trauma and things that I needed to be set free from. So it's so funny. I hadn't thought about that till today. Yeah. I look back at a picture and I was like, well. <laughs> you really didn't care, though. That's why we also take cameras yeah, yes. away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly yeah, there's right. No, there's nothing there. But, but I'm so uh, grateful for that. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the opportunity of, like, the am- anonymity that it creates and allows you to have. Yeah. Um, I think for me and my experience, it was really great to be 
untethered to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Like I was just Mackenzie. Yeah. It wasn't, um, you know, I was coming in as an onset employee in covert, it felt like, but it was just a really beautiful thing for me to then be able to have something that I could choose what I shared about it. Yeah. Because I think so much of my upbringing and I think you, when you were talking earlier about like safe voices and things in your life, the church did not teach me how to have emotional boundaries. Right. Um, growing up in the church, it was like, yes, you're vulnerable and vulnerability means like spraying out to everyone. Um, and it was such a, a great thing to have this precious thing that I had experienced and it was mine yeah. and I got to choose the safe hands that came around that and the voices that came and spoke into that. And I also didn't wear any makeup, which was great. I just got to be me. Yeah. You know? I had a shirt that said wild woman and everyone called me wild woman all week. It was just delightful. I mean, I love that. And also, I want the shirt. I was like, can I get enough? Can I? (laughs) Where are they? And can I get one? Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Ashley. I wanted to pop in really quickly to make sure you know about our newest digital offerings. At OnSite, we're on a mission to equip the world with more accessible resources, and that's exactly what our new Emotional Health Masterclasses do. They make mental health accessible and affordable. For about half the cost of a traditional therapy session, these digital classes include about an hour of clinical expertise as well as an interactive workbook designed to ground, unpack, and apply the concepts to your everyday life. Right now, we offer classes on grief, trauma, shame, and narcissism, and we've got a ton more in the works. As a special thank you for being a podcast listener, you can save $20 on any of our classes when you use the code PODCAST at the checkout. Head to onsiteworkshops.com slash classes to learn more. Now, let's jump back into this conversation. When you talk about like the vulnerability and mm-hmm. like kind of spraying it everywhere, I yeah. think that has been that's sometimes the hard thing with social media mm-hmm, and where yeah. we live right now. And because you see people just sharing everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes, like, have you done the work to get to the place where it's safe for you to share those things? Like, mm-hmm. and that no matter what thing people say, like, you're content and safe in your space of whatever decision mm. that you have made. And I think... That's been something else for me over the last couple of years is like figuring out how do I want to function in social media? Like, yeah, even talking about my experience at Onsite, like there are some things I will share and there are some things to stay I'm not going to share yeah, because not everybody needs to know. But I think that that's the thing of watching social media and seeing so people sharing so much from like, sometimes I look, I'm like, oh gosh, like, have you worked through that? And it's not yeah. my place to judge anybody, but also- yeah. You know, trying to hold that safe space for yourself. Yeah. What is it like for you having a somewhat public, you know, platform and presence to be processing in real time? Do you feel like you're protective of that and then share things after you feel like you've processed it or sat with it or had enough space or revelation? Is it a part of your process to invite people into that safely? It really depends on what it is. Yeah. Like in talking about singleness and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, like I really have no problem talking about it because... I just, I'm like, it just is what it is. Yeah. And also, I think that I wish I had had some woman that was older than me saying, hey, it's okay. Yeah. Like, you're enough. Just mm. as you are in this moment, your relationship status does not define your worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that is a huge part of why I talk about it because yeah, I lived I in so much— way. 
Yeah. I lived in so much shame for so long. And especially coming out of a very destructive relationship where I was told I wasn't worth it. Yeah. It took so long for me to get to a healthier spot that I'm like, I never want... In the midst of that, in the midst of the pain of all of that, I remember praying like, God, please do not let any of this be in vain. And so I think that that's probably part of it for me while I'm open to sharing that. There are other things where if I'm in the middle of working through something that I just kind of have a gut instinct, I think. And sometimes I gut check it of, am I wanting to share this because I feel like it'll help someone else? Mm -hmm. Or am I wanting to share this because I need to feed my ego? Mm, that's a good gut check. And and I can pretty much, if I've typed something out and I ask that question, I can pretty quickly figure out which it is. And if it's my ego, mm. I won't do it. So I, th- I think the question that I add to that is like, am I seeking out connection? Mm. And is there a better way to do it? Oh. Yes. Yes. You know, like that a too. more authentic way to do that. Yeah. Because I would rather have like the one hour long conversation where somebody like really dives into it and asks me all the right questions. Yes. A hundred comments. Of, mm-hmm. Yes. At 100%. So, and if I figure out that it's my ego or that, that there's a different way I need connection, it's when I'll call a friend and be like, okay, this is what I'm working through right now. Typically, they already know it, but like, <laughs> they could probably call it glad out. Glad you called. Yeah. yeah. Glad you talked about that. I've been meaning to talk to you about that again. So, um, so yeah, it really just depends. One practical question that we kind of ask when we're wrapping up mm-hmm. is, what's something that you do to stay centered and grounded and that you feel like helps bolster your emotional health? I mean, journaling and prayer is really probably the center mm-hmm. of it when I feel myself getting off kilter, mm-hmm. I will, that's how I get back to center is just to kind of write it all out and pray. And then again, having people that keep me grounded and and love me for me, like the good, the bad, the ugly, like, and love me anyway, mm-hmm. being with them fills me up. I mean, just being able to sit around a fire with a group of friends that know all your crap and don't care and love you no matter what. And just being able to be freely myself, spending time with them gets me back to center too. When you journal, do you have a prompt or do you just let things pour? I start writing. Just just pour it all out. I mean, Mm -hmm. honestly, like, I don't know if anything ever happens to me. I'm like, I probably should burn them all or something. (laughs) Are there a lot? Yeah, I mean, that's just how... I process everything and have since I was a kid. Do you so. go back? Are you someone that like likes to go back and see, oh, this is a milestone. We talked about that at the beginning or this yeah. happened or this refresh of I really have come a long way or anything like that. Or do you just write it and let it go? Most of the time I just write it and let it go. Yeah. But I think last year when I was home so much, there was a point where I looked back at And I can't remember if I was, like, deep in loneliness or what I was feeling Mm -hmm. at the time. If I was, like, in a good spot or if I wasn't in a good spot. But I think I went went back and read journals going into Mm on-site. And, like, the couple of months before and then the couple of months after. And then seeing where prayers were answered, where God showed up in ways that... I didn't know was possible and seeing the growth. Cause it's kind of like when we start this conversation, Lindsay, you said something about like, we don't realize the growth 
Yeah. Sometimes. And so for me to go back and be like, oh, wait, things have changed. I am different. That is better because it's so easy to sometimes get in the old tapes that, okay, we're okay. Like, I'm okay. So sometimes I probably do that more now than I have ever. I did go back and read some journals from when I was like 10 that I found <laughs> my parents recently. And I was like, well, this is entertaining. <laughs> 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 but that's so fun to reconnect with. Yeah. 10-year-old Ashley. And yeah. she was what really she was fun. About. She was really fun. And that was part of like the work for me at Onsite. The inner child was really transformative for me. So... Yeah, she was great. She was she was tell awesome. us a little what more did, about, yeah. yeah, what was little Ashley like? I mean, she's full of life, so much fun, loves everyone fully, could care less if there were extra rolls on her stomach or um, if she made a mistake, love to sing and dance and just have a great time and love people well. Mm-hmm. So it's funny, after on-site, keep bringing up my friend Beth. She won't care. But she asked me and uh, several other friends of ours that were with us, like, for a picture of ourselves when we felt the most joy as a child. Mm. And in talking about the inner, inner child. And so I sent her this picture, and I, she ended up framing it for each of us, like, our own. And it sits, I mean, right where I sit on my couch, like, I see it every day to remind me of that little girl and that I'm constantly fighting for her. Mm. And, but it's literally, I'm, I mean, I have blonde hair because I think I was like four or five at that point and holding like a fake telephone with a bathing suit on and an old plastic chair. And it's literally just like rolls hanging out of my cutout. And I'm just <laughs> like, whatever. And just having the best time. And I'm like, that's who I'm fighting for every day. So I love that picture. Yeah. She real cute. She's real cute. Well, <laughs> you're real cute. And I sure see a lot of that in you today. So well, thanks. grateful for who you are and how you show up. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for y'all. Well, thanks, thanks for sitting for... down with us, Ashley. I mean, thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about OnSite and our various in-person, online, and digital offerings, please go to onsiteworkshops.com. At OnSite, we have seen that enhancing emotional health changes lives and helps us collectively create a more empathetic and more self-aware world. Our unique and proven therapeutic framework and healing hospitality can help you find the emotional wellness you deserve. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.